Turn with me to John, chapter 20, and I'll begin reading in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from them, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless... I see in his hands the marks, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pray. This morning we would have eyes to see. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Consider a boy who once grew up in the backwoods of South Georgia in the 1990s. We'll call him John. The Christian communities in his town were Characterized by a can-do attitude, a deep, deep care for each other, as well as a kind of legalism, a kind of authoritarian leadership, a kind of instinctual resentment towards who they viewed as the intellectual elites. His mother taught children Sunday school and vacation Bible school and made sure young Johnny was always at her side when they went to church. Her faith was simple and yet deep. John's dad was another story. John's father was an enlightenment man. For him, the whole Christianity thing was a leftover myth from the past, a wish fulfillment that was a holdover from an age of ignorance. 
While John dutifully went along with his mom to church, his dad's skeptical misgivings about religion would not be lost on young John. Even as a child, he could see the possibility, he could imagine the possibility of growing up and going hunting with dad rather than going to church. His father would eventually scrape up enough money to get him out of the Bible Belt and send John to a premier boarding school in New England. Away at prep school, John entered an elite culture, which may have been, may as well have been a different planet from the one he inhabited back home. Upscale frat parties, philosophy seminars, and professors that live and breathe cultural, refined cultural sentiments. John had been taught by his mom to be suspicious of such elite outsiders. He somehow expected them to have horns and pitchforks, but instead he found most of them smart and most of them quite charming. And at the same time, the distance from his childhood home allowed him to see uh, what he felt behind, behind the veneer of the religious culture that he grew up into, that he grew up in. He saw it as ruled by leaders who, like the Pharisees, washed the outside, but inside were driven by power and greed and resentment. It's at this point his doubts about Christianity began to become a major problem. It wasn't simply about the truth claims. He began to see the moral vision of Christianity as something he couldn't buy into. Christianity began to grow more and more irrelevant to him. And even oppressive. John was coming of age. And he came to believe he had no other choice. So he walked away. From the faith he grew up in. Now I'm. I'm wagering. That John is a character. That you can relate to. In one way or the other. Maybe John reminds you of a son or daughter. Who's walked away from the faith. Maybe a grandchild. Or maybe a friend who grew up with you going to church and now thinks Christians are hypocrites and doesn't want anything to do with it. Or maybe, if you're honest, John, or even some of the conversations we've had this weekend about doubt, brings to mind some of your own misgivings that you have yet to share. Of course, John's story, as I've put it, takes place in the Bible Belt. In the 1990s, a place and time which I think it was easier in so many ways to kind of stay in a Christian bubble. But John was an exception in this story. His dad was a skeptic. He was sent away to New England and he was exposed to these different, more secular views and they grew more plausible for him. But now we fast forward to 2024. And we know such doubt can't be roped off and limited to those who are sent off to an elite boarding school or who has a dad as an atheist. As we've said with the internet, the access to a growing diversity of perspectives, the public criticisms of the Bible and Christianity from multiple directions. In some sense, we're all John now. In fact, we might just say in some sense, we're all Thomas now, look with me at John 20 again, starting in verse 24. Now, Thomas, 
One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now Thomas was one of the twelve, which means Thomas had been very, very committed. Thomas had left everything to follow Jesus for three years. He had believed Jesus was the Savior King who would pick up the mantle of King David and save God's people. He was firmly believing that. Now, we need to keep in mind here, and I had this conversation with a few of you afterwards, that for these first century Jews, for these early disciples at this time, who who believed him to be the Messiah, what they didn't have in their mind was what pretty much most of us have in our mind, which is that the Messiah is God in flesh. Okay? They, They weren't there yet. The first century expectations were for a Messiah, a King David, but Yes, well, well, we look back on the Old Testament and we look at certain passages and see it gesturing forward to, to this Messiah being fully God. That was not their expectations. They didn't quite see that in the Old Testament yet. And so that he believed Jesus to the, be the Messiah, but not Yahweh in flesh. Not at least yet. Yes, we know when we, look, when we read the Gospels, we're reading on this side of the resurrection... And we, we, we see these statements that Jesus made, such as, well, before Abraham was, I am. And we see, isn't it obvious? But we need to remember that Jesus was always talking so strangely, right? I mean, he was saying things like, you know, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He was saying things like, I am the door. And we know in the Gospels that the, the Gospels tell us that his disciples did not understand. They did not get it. What were we supposed to take literally and what are we supposed to take metaphorically? And we see this confusion over and over again. Jesus often said strange things and they weren't quite They didn't quite know what to do. Now, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw it, and they had political reasons not to like Jesus. They had a variety of reasons not to like Jesus. And when he he said something like, before Abraham was, I am, they jumped on that. Let's get this guy. He's blasphemed. But make no mistake, we know that the disciples were banking everything that this guy was the Messiah, the Savior King, the Son of David, the one they had been waiting for. In fact, we know from John chapter 10 that Thomas is ready to give his life for the cause. He had put everything in. But then, Jesus allowed himself to be taken. He didn't even put up a fight. And then, on that day when Jesus died on the cross. Thomas had to have believed he had been a fool. For as the ancient philosopher Cicero wrote, the word cross was shameful even to utter in polite Roman society. A crucified king was not only strange, it was just a crazy idea. And Thomas realized, at least in his thinking, that he had thrown 
his reputation, his time, and his money away. And he'd even put himself in great danger. How could he have been, he must have been thinking, so naive, so gullible. And so when the disciples come in, we need to have some historical empathy for Thomas at this moment, right? They had seen the risen Lord, but Thomas wasn't there. They come and they tell Thomas, hey, look, we've seen Jesus. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be had again. Not this time, Thomas. Thomas's doubt is, is rooted in a kind of disillusionment. Today, there's a growing number of people sharing their stories of disillusionment with Christianity. They feel burned. They describe how they've grown up in a Christian home, but they don't believe anymore. What began as doubts and wounds festered and eventually grew into a pervasive cynicism. I spent several years reading these books, reading these articles, listening to these podcasts, and several factors typically came out. Number one, emotionally oppressive church leaders or parents sometimes Physically oppressive church leaders or parents. An anti-intellectual community that ignores insights from non-Christians or other Christian traditions sometimes altogether. An environment that fosters a kind of compulsive need for certainty on all things. And or a version of the faith in which the primary use of Christianity is some is a means to some kind of worldly ends. Oftentimes in these stories that they would share, it was particularly political ends. And let me just pause and say, we can and should reject these things without rejecting Christ. Because some of his followers have taken a wrong turn. It doesn't mean Jesus is the wrong way. But of course, it's not so easy as someone who's going through this if all these things have been tangled together for them. And so part of the last, part of what I was doing yesterday is how to walk through, how to begin to untangle, how to begin to talk to someone about these things. And perhaps for some of you struggling um, in this room to begin talking to you about some of these things. But what does Thomas here have to teach us? What is this story from the Gospel of John have to teach us this morning. As the story begins, Jesus had come to his disciples, but as I've said, Thomas wasn't with them. And later when, John, when Thomas hears the other disciples' testimony, it wasn't enough for them. But look at, down at verse 26. It was eight days later. Eight days later, after this is after he says, I don't believe, I, I can't, I'm not buying it. He's back with the disciples. Now, this means two things. This means two things. Can re- I, I think we can read in between here what has had to happen. On, on, on one hand, they have had to allow him to hang around, right? 
He, he hung around. He was still with them. I don't believe you, but I'm, I'm still with you. Now, that could have been for a variety of reasons, but it seems that they didn't write him off. He didn't agree with them in the most important thing. It, it surely was all they were talking about, right? It's all they were thinking about and talking about, but they didn't just chase him away because of his doubts and questions. Second, what's obvious here is it means that Thomas also hung around. He couldn't simply make himself believe, but he could, and it seems like he did put himself in a context that left him open, that left him open to the possibility. If you're having trouble believing, the best way forward is to find people who believe in Jesus and in humility welcome you to the table to share your doubts and your questions. And if we are going to help people who are struggling with doubt in this, in this world I've been describing over the weekend, we have to find a way as the church to be hospitable. Not to compromise on our beliefs in any way. Not to compromise on our doctrine, but to be a hospital for sinners and doubters. I also say one of the things here that this gestures to is for us to reconsider reasons to believe the resurrection. The resurrection is a historical claim that Christianity rises or falls on. But as we've seen here, Thomas wasn't buying it, or, or at least he wasn't buying it at first. In verse 26, we find out that Thomas had a week to process, to mull over the claims of his friends. And again, we can imagine after spending three years with Jesus, his mind had to be full of memories, the things he had seen, the things that Jesus had said. He could have been thinking about the time when Jesus so strangely said the temple would be destroyed and in three days he would raise it up again and folks thought he was crazy. What's he talking about? But now the other disciples kept talking about how Jesus was referring to how he would rise again in three days. I said, what? Is that what, is that what Jesus was talking about? And if, if that was what Jesus was talking about, we know the temple represented God's presence on earth. What would that mean? If Jesus was the true temple. A week means he had a lot of time. He had a lot of time to think. He had a lot of time to listen. He had a long long time to mold this over, over in his mind. And then Jesus walks into the room and he looks straight at Thomas and says, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. In verse 28, Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Thomas had stayed in the community with all his doubts and disappointments. He surely had to have been coming back to Jesus' claims. He had to consider the evidence in front of him in front of his face right now in that moment and he found himself maybe even to his own surprise confessing my Lord and my God. Now when it's important when we see that Thomas is not using bad language here. Okay? 
This is, these aren't curse words. He's not taking the Lord's name in vain. That's not what he is doing. He's not so surprised now that he's just cursing. Remember what I said yesterday. Thomas and the disciples were monotheists. They believed in one God. And they continued to believe in one God. This, as first century Jews, they, they had Deuteronomy 6.4. Seared into their brain. The Lord God is one. But now as he's had this week to think about it, Jesus said he could forgive sins. But who can forgive sins except God? He said before Abraham was, I am. Did he really think we were supposed to take that literally? Is that what he meant? Was he really the temple? Could it really be? And so we have this profession that comes out, this confession. It is true. This is my Lord and my God. Do you know who we've been walking around with all these years? Verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Now, another way to translate that is you have believed because you have seen me. This is not so much a rebuke, but a statement that distinguishes Thomas from the generation after generation of believers that would follow. This is where Jesus goes next. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is not saying, Thomas, I've given you reasons to believe, but it would be better if you would have just Believe without reasons. I've given you reasons, but it's better if, you, if everyone else just believes blindly. That's not the best reading, I don't think, of this passage. After all, look at the next verses. Verse 30, for instance. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are now written in this book. But, I'm sorry, but are not written in this book. But these are written... These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is writing his testimony as an eyewitness to Jesus' life and resurrection so that we have reasons to believe. In other, way, in other words, we might put it like this. Most of what we know, most of what you know, relies on human testimony. That is what it means to be human. And testimony counts as evidence, as important evidence. But then the question comes up, why should we believe this testimony? And what I want to do is, I've already mentioned I'm going to do this. I want to give you just five quick, quick reasons. Five quick reasons in support of the resurrection. One, the claim of the resurrection for a particular man in the middle of human history would not have been a popular notion in the first century. It is not the sort of thing that one would make up if you're trying to start a movement or the kind of thing that would come to mind in the midst of grief. Why is that? Why is, why is it not a popular notion? Why wasn't it even on the radar screen, so to speak? Well, many Jews, we know, looked for, not all Jews, not the Sadducees, but many Jews 
the Pharisees looked forward to a future bodily resurrection. But they viewed this as a corporate resurrection of all the righteous rather than one person in the middle of human history. So the future resurrection was thought to occur alongside the renewal of the entire world. So claiming that the disciples made up the story of Jesus' resurrection does not sit well with the fact that people were not expecting this at all. It wasn't on their radar screen. Yes, future corporate, when the lion lays down with the lamb, when the new creation, when, the, when God's kingdom fully comes, but not in the middle of, of human history. Not when things continue to develop. Not when sin still remains. No, 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 no. That was not an expectation. So we know from the historical record that Jesus would not be the first Messiah, first person to claim or have followers to claim that they're the the Davidic son. This this happened before. They they garnered a following and they were executed, but only Jesus' followers claimed his resurrection. N.T. Wright puts it like this. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers. He's talking about of these other would-be messiahs. Disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. It involved human bodies. There would have to be an empty tomb somewhere. A Jewish revolutionary whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest himself had two options. Give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive, again, was simply not an option. End of quote. It wasn't an option unless, and this is where Wright goes, unless something happened. And something remarkable happened. Something had had to change. So something had to happen that, that just turned their expectations upside down to say, yes, there's a corporate resurrection coming, but the first fruits have arrived now. Two. So that was number one. Two. In each of the four Gospels, and many of you have heard this, it's worth saying again, women were presented at the, as the first eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. Now, at the time, women were not believed to give, to, to be able to give trustworthy testimony on important matters, which is why they were not allowed to testify in a court of law. So it would have been counterintuitive to invent the story this way with the hope of it catching on. This is not how you run a first century PR. This isn't good marketing. Yet the best explanation for why women are the first eyewitnesses, the the best explanation why all the traditions reported report this uncomfortable detail is because it's simply the way it happened. Three, we have reports written about witnesses to the resurrection who are still alive in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this in a letter, a public letter that's being circulated in kind of this holy internet of churches that were developing. He says Peter, James, himself, and at one time more than 500 people claimed to have seen the resurrected Jesus. 
So this was a public claim. And not only is he making this public claim, of course, he's saying that these witnesses are still alive. So it's this invitation to say, hey, you can check this out behind me. This hasn't happened in the corner here. These witnesses are still alive. You can go talk to them. They're in our community. Four, we have more unusual witnesses. Among those witnesses were Jesus' half-brother James, who apparently, along with the rest of this family, had thought Jesus had pretty much gone off the deep end. We learn from the Gospel accounts. What is going on with our brother here? But then later he claims to have seen his resurrected brother, and then along with the other disciples, soon begins to worship him. Or consider Paul, who is probably the most unlikely person to become a Christian, having spent his, his time persecuting, persecuting the early followers of Jesus, and then claims to have had an encounter with the risen Lord, becomes a Christian, and whose life immediately becomes much, much, much more difficult. Five, if the disciples fabricated such a claim, it would not only have taken mass coordination to promote this highly unpopular idea that no one was expecting, the ability to convince people who were extremely unlikely converts like Paul, and then they'd have to be willing to endure persecution and face the threat of death for what they knew to be something they invented. Now, I'm sorry that was so quick. Right? There's a lot more that can be said here. And, it, and this doesn't go against anything I said yesterday, that this is not somehow 100% historical proof that just can coerce anyone into believing. That's just not how history works. This is not, all of a sudden, I'm not reverting back to two plus twoing my way to God. However, what I am saying that The claim of resurrection is a historical claim. And there are good historical reasons for believing it. Part of dealing with doubt is looking into these reasons. There's support for this testimony in various different ways. But Jesus offers Thomas in these passages something more. Yes, he says, look at me. Look at the marks. That he offers Thomas, and not only Thomas and his disciples, he offers them all something more. He promises peace. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and says, Peace be with you. In this passage, he keeps saying, Peace be with you. Jesus didn't give up on Thomas. He didn't walk away shaking his head in disgust because Thomas had questions and doubt. Instead, instead he seeks him out. He comes for the broken and the doubting and for the sinners. And Jesus promises his disciples and he promises us something that can't be found in this world. He promises us true peace. Now that word peace had to have been echoing in Thomas's mind. Jesus just kept talking about it here. With some of the final words to his disciples, he told them, I have said these things to you, that in me you, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is what every human heart longs for. I said yesterday that the ancients said that every human 
is on a search for happiness. We, all, we can add to that and say that every human is in one way or another in search for peace. We even fight wars and have arguments in hopes of somehow achieving peace. And in a market economy, many have discovered there is a whole lot of money in selling peace. Through a vacation, we are wooed by the prospect of peace and quiet. Through a new pharmaceutical, we are promised peace through well-being. Through a financial plan, we are promised a peaceful retirement. Well, these can offer some temporary versions of peace. I'm not all down on all of that. I'm not, not, I'm not bashing all of that. But they only offer us temporary versions of peace. The reality of pain, suffering, death are never too far away in the distance. Always threatening to destroy the fleeting moments of peace we try to settle for. One of the most common attempts at comfort I hear from people when others are going through a hard time is just keep going. It's going to be okay. It will get better. Hang in there. It will all turn out for the best. And in some ways, I'm, I'm sympathetic with that. In fact, positive psychology has shown how Optimism, positive psychology study that's really kind of took off almost 20 years. And one of the things they're trying to do scientifically is to say what actually leads to a flourishing life. Now, I think there's lots of challenges and, and some problems with, with how they're doing it, but there's also some things I've learned. And one of the things they say is that for a flourishing life, you, uh, people who live a flourishing life have a kind of optimism about it. And again, I think there's something true here and there's something important we can learn. And I also think people who offer this advice, it will get better, hang in there, it'll all turn out for the best. It's well intended. But I have to say, maybe this is partly dispositionally, that I'm sympathetic to the logic of the 20th century atheist Albert Camus, who once said that while he shared the Christian revulsion to the sufferings of this world, he doesn't share the Christian's hope. Now listen carefully to what I said. I do share the hope of Christ. But where I'm sympathetic with Camus is his logic here. The Camusian part of me thinks, will it really get, will it really get better? Why would someone believe that? After all, have you looked around? Do you watch the news? How can we have such optimism? Is it based on reality or is it just blind faith? Be optimistic. Because, well, why? In order to look at the miseries of this world and say everything's going to be okay, just keep going, do you just have to stop thinking about the obvious inevitability of the injustices of this life and the coffin that awaits us all? So why do we as humans offer such reassurances? 
think it's because we want peace. We were made for this peace. We want to look forward and say, it will be made right in the end. There will be peace. But reassuring each other that it's all going to be okay, according to Camus' logic, this is Camus, it's not offering peace, it's offering a delusion. Unless, unless, we have some reason, some sign for such hope. Unless we have some reason to say it will all be well. And so, but every time I begin to walk down that path with Camus, and there's been moments and there's been seasons, I can't help but see Jesus walking into that room and giving Thomas and giving us and giving me the reason for peace. Because of the resurrection, we can actually say to those in Christ, what everyone wants to hear, but we can say it with good reason. It will all be well. It is going to be okay. What can they do to us? It will get better. It will turn out okay. The best is yet to come. Because of the resurrection, we can not only say, peace be with you. We have good reason to say. Father, thank you for the peace we have in Christ. Thank you for your spirit who's working now in us. Thank you for the hope we have, the peace we have. Thank you for how the power of the resurrection is now at work in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.